You are listening to the audio portion of the QB Power Hour webinar series. The QB Power Hour is a free bi-weekly webinar series for accounting professionals presented by Michelle Long and Dan DeLong, who are very passionate about the industry, QuickBooks, and apps that integrate with QuickBooks. You can find out all the details about the webinar series at qbpowerhour.com. So without further ado, here's Michelle and Dan. Welcome, everybody, to 2024. I hope you guys all had a good, safe new year, and we're glad, very glad to have you all joining us to another QB Power Hour. And thank you, Dan, for our great intro music, and he's got a good podcast intro as well. So thanks, Dan, for doing that. So welcome to the seven-minute advisory conversation with our special guest, Mike Milan, joining us today. And we're very glad to have you guys all joining us here for the start of 2024. As we get into our QB Power Hour, my name is Michelle Long. I'm very glad to have you joining us today. You guys know me. I'm the owner of Launch for Success, speaker, contract trainer for Intuit for a long time, other five different books. You can check those out on Amazon. There's the link to our Facebook group. And that's enough about me. Dan, go ahead. Yeah, my name is Dan DeLong, owner of Danwood. I worked at Intuit for nearly 18 years. I co-host on today, also at the Workshop Wednesdays, which is at coolbookkeeping.com, doing some tech editing for the QBO for Dummies uh, series as well. Mike, introduce yourself here. Hey, yeah, I'm Mike Mylan, and live from San Antonio, it's Cashflow Mike. And myself, I've built 14 companies, including some software products that people know, like Cashflow Tool. I've written a couple of books, one called The Seven Minute Conversation, and the other one called Don't Be a Dumb Business Owner. Dumb doesn't mean unintelligent. It means I don't understand my business. And then, of course, I've got the podcast as well called Mike and Blaine, where we talk about business, beer, and BS. Join me in any one of those things. So how did you get into this whole name of, I was talking to my dad and, and nicknames were very interesting as far as what, where they came from. So where did Cashflow Mike come from? Cashflow Mike came from while I was at Finograph. We were trying to sell to banks, right? And the bank sales process for software is nine to 12 months. So in order to bring money in, we created some training programs and sold them directly to banks. And what the bankers found interesting is that I stopped talking about profit. They didn't expect a business owner to not talk about product profit. I just talked about cash flow. So one of them threw out says, Hey, that's cash flow, Mike, in the hallway. And it stuck. And then James Walter, the CEO of Fenograph, ran with it. And I don't know, I can't shake it now. So I just decided to lean into it. <laughs> Good idea. Thank you for for joining us here today. And I appreciate the kicking off 2024 with this kind of uh, conversation. So a little bit about the details about the QB Power Hour webinar. It's every other Tuesday at uh, 12 noon Eastern. Not eligible for CPE uh, for upcoming uh, events. Please check the website for, for topic. If you need the PDF of the slides, the recordings, the podcasts, and other resources, we have a webpage on our dedicated to all that, which is givepowerhour.com slash resource. A little bit of the housekeeping. If you have specific questions about something that um, Mike is talking about today, please put them in the Q&A, especially if we have, uh, don't have time for everything today. Uh, it's great to be able to follow up with that. If you have just general comments like Happy New Year, uh, please put those in the chat 
And then of course you need the handouts. You can always go to the, the links there in the, the handouts as well as the archive. Now, uh, something new is that we're trying a new tool. And unfortunately I realized I can't do that on the same machine that I'm, <laughs> that I'm, that I'm doing the zoom on as well. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to share the information as, as broadly as we can, when it live is when it happens. So when you sign up a register for the webinar series, you only have to do that once, but in order to join us, you got to log into the zoom webinar. So we're trying a new tool, which will allow us to simulcast it on the Facebook group, the YouTube, LinkedIn, and much, much more, right? Which allows more people to join in. They don't have to register. The event will be, we'll be able to add that directly on the platform, but there, with any technology, there's the yeah button, right? Right. So you have chat, comment, and poll are only going to be available if you register for the webinar, right? But you can still be part of the conversation on that platform of choice, right? The challenge is that the Facebook group is a private group. You have to join the group first and it's privacy settings. You can't see the posts unless you're a member of the group. If you are watching in the Facebook group and you comment on something, it's just going to say, Facebook user as opposed to your name. We can't keep track of who's talking what, unless we're actually seeing it in the group. But if you were wanting to uh, allow that tool to be able to see your name, you just have to allow that, right? It, if you're watching on the group and you want to be able to do that, you can just scan that QR code there. And that will turn Facebook user into your name. You'll all do it. But we're hoping to, this will allow more people to see the power hour, right? So we're going to start off with a poll because we're going to be talking about advisory. And Michelle, what are your thoughts about advisory in general, like in, in, the, in this particular industry, the accounting industry, moving to advisory? It's been a a big push, right? Yeah. And I think more than ever, we have to embrace it because of AI, because of chat GPT and Claude and Bard and all this other AI stuff. And Intuit Assist, Intuit's coming out with AI too. And because of AI, now more than ever, we have to understand this stuff. And Cashflow Mike is at the forefront and he's been doing this for years and Mike's well-positioned to help us to do this. Mike, you are in a great spot for this, but as bookkeepers and accounting professionals, we have, if you haven't been embracing this, learning this, talking to your clients about this, this is the way we differentiate ourselves because basic bookkeeping and basic accounting and basic compliance work, it's still going to be there. We still need it. The vast majority of it is being automated. We've seen that with the bank rules and all that stuff being automated where we're just monitoring it. And there's no real value add to that. The clients don't see a lot of value to that, but talking to the clients about their numbers, about their cash flow, about what they're doing with their business. That's where the value add is coming into this advisory. But I think when people hear advisory, it's this all-encompassing advisory. What does that mean? 
And that's scary. But when you say, hey, cash flow, people can relate to that. Let's talk about cash flow. What does that mean to your business? And so I think, Mike, that's just a great area to focus on. Every business needs help with cash flow, whether they're growing. And that's something a lot of people don't realize. You can grow too fast. You can grow yourself out of business. Cash flow is a problem when you're a growing business because you can grow too fast and get into cash flow problems. Just if you're a struggling business, you can have cash flow problems. Advisory is more important than ever. And I think it is critical over the next three years or two years. We don't have a three to five year time frame anymore. I think it's one to three years. I think it's critical in, in my opinion, but, but it's worth what you pay for it. <laughs> what do you think? Me personally, I, I, I'm going to tell you that it's exactly what I wished my accountant, CPA, bookkeeper was doing in the early 2000s. When I first started out with businesses, I'd get awesome reporting. I'd get awesome job with my tax returns, things like that. But when I asked the question, hey, okay, what do I do next? There was always a little hesitancy or there was a little, I don't know. That's one of the things that I struggled with early on that I hope to be able to solve. And I think that's what the last decade or not decade, really. 25 years, what is that, a quarter century? How do, how do you say that? And has <laughs> done is allowed me to uh, distill some complex financial con uh, concepts into some easy to use, what can I do, field expedient methods, and get people to take action and improve their position. So I, I think it's critical. I really do. And even into it is getting into the advisory training, right? And the ProAdvisor portal, there is three different modules on the advisory. Now, Mike, you know, the, the seven minute advisory conversation, if, if you want to share your screen so you can uh, get that started there, but I, I wanted to kick, the, uh, kick things off uh, with the seven minute conversation. Can you, does it take seven minutes to create the conversation or seven minutes to have the conversation? I can create it and have it in less than seven minutes. As a matter of fact, that in one of the training videos in my course, I actually show it being done in less than seven minutes. So six minutes and 48 seconds. And, and, and over the last year, I've created an app that makes it even faster. So I might change it to the three-minute conversation. Wow. It just happened. Now, I'll give you a little bit of background, right? At one point in time, I had a hotel staffing company three bar restaurants and nine multifamily housing units, right? So I had five different LLCs operating as once and I needed that quick what's going on, right? So I created this template of how to analyze a company very quickly so I knew where to spend my time. And what it became was a pattern of how I could evaluate any company in less than seven minutes to give me a gauge on what their health was, where they needed to focus, uh, and, and lastly, what came about un unexpectedly was education for a client or somebody that doesn't know a lot about how to read their financial statements. So this one tool gives you not only education, but insight and priority of work. So I, I'm really excited about it and I, I've leaned into it as well. Mike, I couldn't agree with you more that the clients really do need some education and they want that. They want to understand what their numbers mean and they want somebody who can explain it to them that in a way that works for them. They don't want someone to just give them their reports or give them their financials or whatever. They want someone to really help them understand what it means and how changes can impact their numbers and how they can improve upon it and stuff. And that was one of the things that I learned is they didn't want the numbers. They wanted what I would give them a picture book, charts and graphs. And if you would explain how doing this can impact it and make a difference, 
they were all in and they were motivated to help see those numbers and, and improve those numbers and work towards improving the charts and graphs and stuff. And so we would always joke about, here's your picture book. You know, they love the picture book, the charts and graphs and making the pictures move. And they, once they understood it, it was huge. And so having those conversations, they want to learn and understand it. But if you come in there and talk to them in a Cali term, they, it just, it's like going into a doctor and they talk in all these big terms and lingo and you don't understand it. You need to talk to them in language that they understand. And that's what you do so well, Mike, is putting in terminology that they can relate to, that they can understand so that it can make a difference in their business. And I think that's where you really excel in what you do is putting it in language that they can really understand and relate to. And that I think is, is huge. Well, I, I definitely appreciate that. And the thing we're going to go over, and I think this is important, uh, is the seven-minute conversation. There's six calculations to just looking at your financial statements. And I call it the home run financial system. And I'll tell you why. It's because it touches all the bases. It touches the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement, and just see six calculations to tell a data story. And that's what we're doing. If you don't have this book, uh, it's okay. You can get a free download of it. Just go to cashflowmike.com. Download the e-version of it. It will walk you through step-by-step -step how to do these. And of course, if you have any questions, you can contact me or Dan or Michelle to get in touch with me. And we got Facebook as well. But I do call it the home road financial system. Today, what we're going to go over is these six calculations that I use. We're going to show how these six calculations point to huge problems in a company and give you a different way to interpret the cash flow statement. If you haven't done this before, I have a technique that allows anybody to interpret the cash flow statement in 15 seconds or less. And of course, I'm going to give you two big mistakes companies make while they're trying to grow. Michelle, you, you said it perfectly. It isn't just your small companies. It isn't just companies that are struggling for sales and things like that that could have a cash flow problem. Even some of our large successful companies fall into those cash flow troubles. Dell is one. There's a ton of them that have that same exact problem. Let's start off with some math. Just get our math muscle working because I'm going to go through a lot of calculations. But this one, these two questions always are interesting to me. Let's just pretend you're a retailer that buys a shirt for 26 bucks and you sell it for 40. What's your gross profit margin percentage? How much did you make? You can throw it right there in, in chat or we'll just wait for a couple answers to come in. How much would you make on that shirt? If you sold it for 40 and you bought it for 26, anybody? 35%. And that's right, 35%. There we go. So if you got 35%, that's a that's pretty it's pretty pretty good because that is the most important number on the income statement, that gross profit margin percentage. Gross profit is the only place you can get cash to spend or put in your pocket. So you have to remember it that way. You can't spend sales, you can spend gross profit. So my courses, my techniques focus a lot on gross profit. With that in mind, let's do another one. First of all, I buy an item for $54 and I want to make 25% gross profit. What do I sell it for? Now, what's interesting is this question, as simple as it seems and looks, I've had people reprice their entire store because they got it wrong. So I bought something for 54 and I want to make 25%. How much do I sell it for? 6750, 67.50. You can see we got different answers coming in, right? 72, 67.50. All right. So the correct answer is, or should I say the most incorrect answer is 
The correct answer is 72. So if you got 6750, chances are you did this. You took 54 and you took 25% of 54, which is 1350, and added it back to 54. Now, let me show you why that's wrong and how to do it correctly. And if you want, I have a gross profit pricing calculator spreadsheet. I'll give out to anybody. I'll send it to uh, Michelle and Dan and you can get it from them. But it's just a free calculator where you don't ever get this wrong again. I use a technique I call the mini PL. M Michelle, do you ever do Sudoku or what is that? Sudoku or uh, how do you pronounce that? Do you ever do those puzzles? I have done it once or twice, but not a lot. Yeah, the whole purpose of the game, though, is there's, there's nine boxes. Only one number fits in any box. That's exactly how I set up the mini P&L. If you get it right, only number one number should fit into one box. Yeah, Leslie goes, it's simple. Just divide by 0.75. That works. Or what if you're 37.7, right? It makes it a little bit harder when it's not round numbers. But here's what happens. Right now, we get, I, I take a word problem and create a mini P&L. So this is two versions of the same thing. I'm going to show the way it should be and what happens when you get it wrong. So all I do is fill in the blank of things that I know. I know that I bought something for 54, so that's cost of goods sold. I know that I want to make 25%, so I put 25% there. The percent side and it is always a percentage of sales, so sales is always 100. And then the dollar side is whatever it comes up to be. Now, operating expenses, I'm just giving you that because I want to show the example of why this is good or bad. So operating expenses, we'll just say is 15. So if you're going to do this, you just go, what do I know? What can I do next? I know I want to make 25%. If that's true, 100 minus a number is 25. That's 75. So right there, we know automatically that 54 is 75% of sales. So Leslie was right. 54 divided by 0.75 is 72, All right? And 72 minus 54 for cost of goods sold is $18. Now to check yourself, this is why I called a Sudoku puzzle. 18 divided by 25 should be 72. Is that right? Anybody? 18 divided by 0.25 should equal 72 as well. So it doesn't matter which way we slice and dice this, we get it the same answer. So 18 minus 15 equals three. Now here's what happens in real life. I do my Excel spreadsheet. I come up with my price. I hand the pricing gun to one of my employees and I say, Hey, I want to make these 25%. Make you make sure you mark up everything. So we get gross profit of 25%. They do a quick calculation, come up with 67.50 and go click on everything in the store. Now, all of a sudden, what I have on the Excel spreadsheet doesn't match the prices on the shelf. And we're wondering why we didn't make money. If we got it like that, we have 67.50 now because we did the calculation wrong. 67.50 minus 54 equals 13.50. So if we did it right, 13.50 should be 25% of 67.50. Who can do that? 13.50 divided by 67.50 tells us what percentage, what gross profit percentage we have. Anybody have that? 13.50 divided by 67.50? Yeah, 20%, right? Larissa's right, 20%. That means we will have 5% in the pricing gun just by making a simple, quick little error. In that case, when we bring in 1350, our expenses didn't change. That makes the difference. That's why we sometimes lose money. We don't understand why. It could be we did a simple calculation just a little off. So that's just to get your math muscle working. This has nothing to do with a seven minute conversation.
<laughs> just to get your math muscle working. But it's important because cash derives itself from gross profit. So the seven-minute conversation is built on what I call the home run financial system. And of course, there's three statements that we all use. Now, if you talk to a business owner, sometimes they'll say there's a fourth statement and they're talking about the bank statement, right? And everybody can tell you about the bank statement. It's only going to tell you if you have a good or bad day, right? Do I, do I have money or not? That's it. That's the only thing you can get from there. Now, the other one they lean on a lot, business owners, is the income statement. It's like a report card. How much should I sell versus how much I spent and what's left? But the income statement's only going to tell you if you have a good or bad month or quarter or year, and then it starts over. How do we get to start over? How do we get to start over? We're like, oh, we blew it in December. Don't worry about it. We'll get them in January. How do you get to start over? What's the mechanism? Anybody know? Michelle, I know you know this one. It's okay if you don't. How do you start over on the P&L? Yeah. How does it just reset the next month? Because the P&L starts over, it all goes through a change earnings. Yep. We take the result, net profit, and we put it onto the balance sheet in the form of retained earnings, right? So that's all it does. It, it just resets it. It takes the result, puts it onto the balance sheet. So it doesn't just disappear. It goes somewhere else, right? Connects to the balance sheet in, in that line. Now, the balance sheet is interesting because most business owners will look at it and go, huh, that number matches that number. Bookkeeper is doing a good job. <laughs> that's about as far as they go is that they don't really understand how to use it. But what the balance sheet is that it is the most important financial statement you have because it is the, the life of the company. It is every decision you've ever made, the culmination of all those decisions in one living document. So what I bought, what I own, what I owe, who owns part in the, in the company, it's all right there on the balance sheet. It does not start over. It just lives on in perpetuity. So the balance sheet is the central thing. And if you know how to read it, it tells you if you have a good or bad company. So one says good or bad day. The next says good or bad month, quarter, year. This says good or bad company. Now, where people get really confused is on how do I use the cash flow statement? The cash flow statement's main purpose is this. It's the tattletale of your business. It tells on you. Anybody that knows how to read it knows where your money came from and what you did with it. Right? No matter what story you tell me, I can look at the cash flow statement and, and figure out where money came from or where it went. Now, why people get confused is because we're used to vertical math. And the income statement is vertical. I start with sales. I end. I keep subtracting until I got net profit. In the balance sheet, it's still vertical math. I take money out of the checking account. It goes down. I put money into the checking account. It goes up. It's vertical math. The cash flow statement is considered to be horizontal math, right? So it's looking across your company period over period. It doesn't go up and down. It compares the changes in one period to the next. So what happened in January last year to January this year, it just, the number is the difference between two periods. It's horizontal. So that's where most people get confused because they can't just add up transactions and come up with a number because they have to take the difference in the two accounts. So getting the client to understand that first really illuminates what they're looking at, right? They know what to look at next. So here's how it looks, how the money uh, numbers run through there. You got your income statement, right? Net profit goes into this thing that most business owners never see, statement of retained earnings. But that's where we just figure out if we paid somebody or not, paid off some of the owners, and we take the end result and put it into the balance sheet. The cash flow statement also flows into the balance sheet with ending cash becoming 
your cash balance on the balance sheet. So everything is flowing into that balance sheet, making it the most important one. So today, I'm going to use Sammy. Sammy's one of my favorite clients of all time. This isn't him, but it's a funny picture of him because I lived in Missouri for 20, 25 years. He owned a paint manufacturing company outside of St. Louis in Wentzville, Missouri. And he ran it for about 30 years. His dad ran it for about 20 years before that. It's a 50-year-old company. He wants to pass it down to his son, and he also wants to grow the company. So the reason why I say that is because when I give you the, the calculation results, it has to connect back to the story. What is this person looking to do? Because in advisory services, it isn't just we look at every company in a silo and say, oh, you fit in this box. No, it's how does your financial position connect to what you're trying to do or what you've already done, right? That's the skill. Right. It isn't just doing the math. It's connecting it to the end result, the transferable value. So here's the financial statements I'm going to use. They're in the slides that I gave you. They're also in the book. Right. So uh, you've got financial statements in the book as well. So if you downloaded that book, uh, you'll have them. I've got five years worth of balance sheet and income statement. And year one is the oldest year. I think 2021 to 2025, uh, if it helps, if you need numbers to do that. Year one's the oldest year. Year five is the current year. Michelle, that I, I heard somewhere that CPAs do it backwards. Is that right? Where the current year is on the left side, not the right side. Yeah, that I like to read left. Or I like how you have it work for me. <laughs> All right, then let's use it and let's get started now. The reason this came about is that I had all of these companies running at once, and it seemed like I was always just too much information. There was too many pieces of paper. There was too many different reports I was looking at. I said, I need something real quick that we can do. So I said, here's what I want. I want a little bit from all of them, the main things that I think are trying to impact my company the most. And we came up with the six things. Now, everybody kind of attacks the financial statements differently, but we all start off with this thing called trends. So when I use trends, I use the KISS method. This is what makes it so fast. What's you guys, Dan, what's KISS to you? What, what KISS is? Keep, keep it simple. Derogatory term. <laughs> you're, you're starting off negative. You're starting off negative with the new year. It's keep it super simple. Oh, there you go. Ah, there you go. Come on, let's go. Hey, keep it simple, sweetheart. There you go. All right. So what I do is I don't do the math. I just look at it and go, it's close enough because it's, it doesn't matter here if it's, pennies and dollars and things like that. Just get me in there in the area. And I look at the relationships between them. These don't operate in silos either. I look at, do I expect it? So the two questions I'm going to ask on all four of these trends and it's sales, gross profit, operating expense, net profit is A, is it good or bad? B, do I expect it? Those are the two things that I look at. So sales here is, we're going to agree that it's down, right? And if I just guess a little bit, it's down about a million dollars. Is that good or bad? You can, you can do this. It seems bad. We don't know if it's bad yet, but it seems like that's not what I want. That's not what I expect. So we'll look at the next one. The next one is gross profit, right? Remember I said gross profits are the most important number on the, on the income statement. So I pay really close attention to this. It's also going down and it's going down about $450,000. So the question is, is this good or bad? I, I think it's bad because that means I had $450,000 less to spend. That's the way I look at it. And do I expect it? The answer is yes. I actually do expect it because 
if sales are coming down and I'm managing to gross profit, they should move together. So I, I, I think I should expect that. What happens if I don't see that and I see something opposite, right? Where sales are going down, gross profits coming up. Anybody? Sales down, gross profits up. We don't know, but that seems pretty good. Yeah, but Unusual. it's good, right? I'm doing less work and making more money. It's, yeah. It seems pretty good. They should trend together. Like you said, they usually trend together. Usually trend together, but sometimes you'll yeah. see them different. And the reason I put the arrows is that in this book, I have a uh, trend cheat sheet that says, if you see these arrows going this way, up and down, up, down, whatever it is, it tells you what's happening. So there's a trend, trend cheat sheet in the book. Now, operating expenses are also coming down, right? And they're down about 350000 And I'm like going, okay, that seems good, right? At least we saw sales coming down. We saw gross profit coming down and we made adjustments. We don't know if it's the right adjustment, but we know we did something. Do I expect it? And the answer is no. I don't expect it because this one does not move with sales. It takes a management decision to add or reduce expenses. Somebody has to do something, right? It just doesn't happen. So I'm actually going to give Sammy a pat on the back there for cutting expenses. And then here's the result. We can't do anything to net profit. It's just a result. We have to deal with one of the other three categories. And this is just what happens. Then I start to see relationships form. When I do it like this, I'm like going, okay, 450, 350, the difference is 100. Oh, because I had $450,000 less to spend and I only spent $350,000 less, yeah, I paid out of my own pocket $100,000. I start to see that form. And rather than try to communicate it that way to the client, I go to calculation number two, right? Calculation. But, but calculation number two, first of all, in the trends, my first impression of this company is, hey, we're in trouble. Something bad is happening where we're selling less, we're making less money, and we're losing out in profit. So I go to the next step, which is, let's see if we cut enough expenses. This is expense control. And expense control is a hard, fast rule. If you violate this rule, you will kill your company over time. You just will. You, you will kill a company. And the rule is this. When gross profit decreases, you should cut operating expense by the same amount. So let me say that more simply. Gross profit is the amount of money you have to spend. Operating expenses is how you spend it. If you have less money to spend, you should spend less money, right? It, 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 if you took a $2,000 pay cut at, it, it, in your household, something would have to change. You might still be able to cover your bills, but you might not be going to Taylor Swift concerts. And you might not be going to... <laughs> You might not be going out to eat or investing or something. <laughs> you might not be going to cheese football games or anybody. Might not be even traveling the country in an RV. <laughs> so, all these hey hey, don't don't think about that as a dig on you because I'm envious. <laughs> so don't, don't think of it that way. All right. So if we look at sales over time, in most companies you'll see a growth ramp up and then it ebbs and flows right over time. And if we're doing it right, gross profit kind of runs with it. Operating expense, when I've graphed these out for companies, they don't tend to move this way. They tend to move in stair-step uh, uh, patterns because we only add expense when we're growing and I have to. I have employees that are saying, if you don't give me help, I'm going to quit because there's too much work. So we hit capacity levels and we're like, going, oh, we need to add an employee. Oh, we should add another truck. Oh, we should do... We're adding expense to keep up with 
our growth. In this case, the difference between gross profit, money coming in, and operating expense going out, the difference there is just profit. That's how much money we're making. And I hold it flat because the longer I can hold it flat, the more money I make. Right? That's why we do that. And I only add expense when I have to. Now, what's interesting is look at the gap here. Look how close it becomes. I'm making less money. I'm selling more, but making less money. When this line, operating expenses, touch uh, gross profit, what's that called? Anybody? Gross profit equals operating expense. Break even. Break even. I like to call it practice and working because we don't do it for money anymore. We just go in and do things and we don't make anything. We just do it. So we're practicing going to work. But this is the exact position where you see headlines in the news. You know a company is doing this when you see Meta lays off 7,000 jobs. How do they know to lay off 7,000 jobs and not 10,000 or not 2,000? It's because the change in gross profit equals the salary of 7,000 people. So they make this decision and cut 7,000 jobs because then they can get back to making the same money. Even at a lower gross profit volume or even at a lower sales volume, you can make the same money. Now, some people don't make that change. Some people just keep it going. They just keep it going like that. This is operating expenses over gross profit. That means I'm spending more than I'm bringing in. So all of this is lost. Now, when I was a state trooper, some people on the call know that I was a state trooper in Missouri. Never ran across Michelle while I was a state trooper. <laughs> but... but I used to go to networking parties and people always ask me, hey, what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm a state trooper. What do you think is the second question they ask a state trooper most of the time, 80% of the time? They go, all right, Mike, come on, tell me, how fast can I drive? <laughs> I, I got that question time and time again. And my answer was the same. And it was never, you should drive the speed limit, sir. It was more like, you can drive as fast as you can afford. So I mean, if you can afford a $50 ticket, drive that fast. If you can afford a night in jail, drive that fast because I can give out both. <laughs> Either one. <laughs> so anyway, that's what happens in business. How long can I keep gross profit over operating expense? Well, as long as you can afford. As soon as you run out of cash, you've killed the company. That's why I say that. So let me prove it to you mathematically. We have gross profit minus operating expense equals net profit. In Sammy's case, he had $450,000 less to spend in gross profit. He cut $350,000 in uh, operating expense. And the result was he lost $100,000 in profit. What if he would have done this? See, 450 minus 350 equals 100. If instead he's down 450, he cuts 450, his net profit actually stays the same. If you cut the same amount that you lost in spending, you can make the same profit no matter the sales level just by maintaining. That's called a spence control. And that's number two. Uh, you guys want to try a poll? I've been windy for a little bit. Yeah, let me, let me launch another poll. This is the next one. But when do you typically make goals and directions in your business? I was curious about that because do you do it in the end of the year or do you do it after the year is uh, started? I, I tend to do it in month nine or 10, right? Preparing for the new year because when I wasn't doing that way, when I was waiting till January, February, I felt like there was an air gap. 
oh my God, I just wasted January, February trying to get my whole year put together when I'm on the calendar year. And the reason I say month nine or 10 is because some people are on fiscal years that are different than the calendar. So I like to have it done and we've already made preparations to start January 1st with anything new. What about you? If you, if you do it in December, you've got, that's the busiest time away from your business. Right. Especially if you're in the retail. Yeah. Right. I'm going to say, I think for some businesses, it depends on their seasonality. If you've got lawn and landscaping business, you're not going to do it at the same time as necessarily a construction company or something or a retail company. So it depends on the business. Like you were saying, if they have a different fiscal year or something, or just the seasonality in the business. And sometimes I think it helps to, to visit the company on twice a year, not just once a year. Take a look, or quarterly would be a great idea. And once you've set the budget, visit them quarterly. Let's see how they're doing. Let's compare these things and let's look at these things throughout the year and see how they're doing so you can make adjustments. If you just wait till the end of the year and say, oh, you missed it. You got to look on a regular ongoing basis and make adjustments and bring tune it and things like that to help keep them on track, to help them hit it, especially when they're new to this stuff, in my opinion, to help keep checking in with them and stuff like that. Don't just set it and forget it. In my experience, anyway, you have to hold their hand, especially when they're new to this process. Once you've been working with Sammy for five years and he's got it, you can check in with them once a year. But if you're new working with Sammy, the first year, maybe you got to check in with the monthly or quarterly mm. and then twice a year. And then maybe just once a year. Just like with anything, if they're new to it, you got to hold their hand a little closer in the beginning. Yeah, I like that. I like that. All right. And, and if you're only going to take three minutes to have these, these conversations, <laughs> you can do them at regular intervals. That's true. That's true. I, 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 three minutes was a guess. Three minutes was a guess. No, it's not instrument. And one more suggestion is some people now, what they're doing is at the end of the month or whatever, they're creating a little video or whatever to send with the financial and say, hey, here's how you're doing. Keep working on this. Keep working on that. You're doing great. They can send them a little video going over the results of their financials with them on a monthly basis or whatever so that you can share that with them. It doesn't necessarily have to be a long meeting or something. You could do a quick. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Exactly. All right, cool. Hey, the, the third one is debt to equity ratio. And you're like, why are we doing that? Because it's a measurement of how much do you believe in your own company? And it's one of the things that banks tend to lean on, right? It's one of those things. How much do they have in the company versus you? The reason why I included it is because what I found out is that the banker was giving me one piece of advice and the accountant was giving me the other and they were opposite. You're telling me to do opposite things. For instance, the accountant's motivation in my case was he wanted to minimize my taxes. So he had a tax strategy that reduced net profit. So I paid less tax, but it also reduces equity. The banker who's trying to give me a loan needed to lend against the equity. So when I reduced the equity or had losses, that also reduces the retained earnings, which made the equity go down as well. So I'm like, there's got to be a balance. So the balance is this. In the business owner's mind, they have to answer the question. Do I think I need a loan next year? Why? Because that number, this debt to equity needs to be at about 2.5 or less for about 12 months. Because 2.5 is the maximum they'll lend you on this. So if you want to know the answer to the banking test on this debt to equity and your client wants to go get a loan, 2.5 or less is where you need to be. So in Sammy's case, 
He had a 1.45. Was that good or bad? Is that good or bad? It depends. It depends on the industry. Yeah. But at least we know it's less than the, what the banker wants, right? Here right. so wants 2.5 or less. The higher this number is, the more risk to the bank. Think about when you buy a house. You put in 20%, the bank puts in 80%. So 80 is the debt, 20 is the equity. 80 divided by 20 equals four. Yeah, you got a four. But if they only gave you the option to put in 10% and they put in 90, 90 divided by 10 equals a nine. It's more risk to the bank, the higher the number. So that's how you got to look at it. They want on a business, though, not to give you $4, but to only give you $2.50 or thereabouts. So that's the goal. If you think you need a loan, long-term lending, this is where you need to be. So in this case, he's actually pretty good. If he needs a loan, he's in the ballpark. Now, as you said, Michelle, you want to compare this to industry average, because what if everybody else is at 0.5? He, he may not be managing debt as well as others. That's the way they're going to look at it. All right. That leads me to the next one is EBITDA, right? And I bet nobody on this call has clients calling them up saying, hey, what's my EBITDA this week? What's my EBITDA this month? Unless they have a banker that's pushing them to. Because this is a substitute word for cash flow. To the bank, they use EBITDA synonymous with cash flow. And the purpose of this whole calculation, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, is to put companies on a level playing field to compare each other. You're like, well, how do they do that? This calculation takes out all the effects of management decisions we make about financing and accounting. Financing because some people do equity, some people do debt. If I throw in interest, it doesn't matter because the debt financing is covered with the interest, so we look the same as equity financing. Taxes are just a result. There's no operational expense, so they just ignore that and throw that in. Then the depreciation amortization, that's non-cash. Nobody ever writes a check for those things. And we all use different methods sometimes. Even though we most of us use straight line, there's a such thing as double declining balance or depletion or activity method. All these things are different and change the way that we pay taxes. So we add it back in and we all look the same. So this is a way to equalize all companies and show what they call true cash flow. What's the real cash that's coming through the business? So it's a substitute word for cash flow. Here's how the business owner and you can use it. In general, across the country, EBITDA times three will equal your long-term debt ceiling, right? EBITDA times three. So if you have a $300,000 EBITDA, they're going to lend you up to about $900,000. That's about how much they can afford to pay. Why that's important is because business owners will go in and go, hey, I need a loan. And they'll ask the banker, right? I need a loan. And the banker says, how much do you want? And the business owner goes, I don't know. How much will you give me? <laughs> that, that's not the position we want to be in, right? Is asking the bank how much they'll give them. Because the banker needs to know that you understand debt and how to use it properly in your business. This gets you close in the ballpark, right? So you don't ask for too much and they decline your original amount and come back approving a lower amount. They used EBITDA to calculate how much you can afford. You mean you can't haggle with, with a loan? Yeah, you can't negotiate the number, meaning the how much they'll give you. You can negotiate the term, how long, and, and the interest rate, right? Yeah, so you can do that, but the number, they're not going to give you more than EBITDA times three, roughly. Now, here's the other number that they use EBITDA for, this debt service coverage ratio. And I won't go through how to calculate it. I'll say it for the video. It is EBITDA divided by the current portion of long-term debt plus interest. 
right? <laughs> that's, that's how you calculate it. But here's what you need to know. That number should be 1.25 or higher. And what that means is for every dollar you owe in debt, you have a dollar 25 or more available to pay for the debt. That's what they're saying. So 1.25. EBITDA is pretty important if you're thinking about lending as a way to grow. And if you're trying to, well, first of all, this is Sammy's numbers. Sammy actually had 385, gives him a long-term debt capacity of 1.1 million. When you do this calculation for your client, go look and see what they already have out, right? Because it's like having a credit card they they already have a balance on. So I'm going to subtract out what's on the balance sheet. That means he can only take out a loan for about $442,000, 442. So that's, that kind of gets you in the ballpark where he's not asking for a million because they'll only give him about 500,000. All right. Speaking of debt, I'm going to go through this one pretty quickly. This is called mismatch financing. It's using the wrong loan product to buy something. And the why that's important is that when you use the wrong loan product, you chances are you're paying too high of interest. The example I can give you, nobody's going to buy a house with a credit card, right? 30% interest versus seven. <laughs> You're just not going to do it. That's the same thing that we do in business though. We'll go buy something that we can depreciate on a credit card, meaning we can actually spread out the, the expense of this over three, four, five, seven years, but we're putting on a credit card that needs to be packed, paid back in one year. This is saying that you should use the right loan product to buy things. And here's the rule. The rule is the length of the loan should match the life of the asset. That's the big gist out of this. The length of the loan matches the life of the asset. So if I'm going to use debt and I go buy something I could appreciate for five years, then I should buy that with a term loan for five years if I don't uh, use cash. Because when the ex- when the payments end, so does the depreciation. It's a good time to replace or upgrade or actually take the benefit of a capital or a depreciated asset. Here's how you find it. You look to see if somebody bought something, right? So I'm looking for gross fixed assets to go up. In this case, it did. And this is a variation of the basic accounting formula, which is assets equals liabilities plus equity, right? That's just a variation. It's just ignoring short-term debt. If this doesn't equal, chances are you purchased it with a short-term debt product. These should equal, right? Long-term debt is went down in Sammy's case and retained earnings went up. If we did it and we used whatever we purchased here, our gross fixed assets, if we did it right, we should have used long-term debt in cash. And you're like going, that's retained earnings, Mike, and that's not cash. What's well, profit that comes into the business as retained earnings, but it's also cash in the bank account from profit and sales and a KAR from profit and sales. So that's the opposite end of it. But these two numbers don't equal. As an accountant, a bookkeeper, if you see this, turn this over to a bank. Just say, hey, listen, we need to get you involved with a bank because we can move the debt off of whatever, your line of credit, your credit card, into a term loan, reduce your payments. It doesn't increase your debt. It just keeps you from pushing cash out into the world in the form of interest. So in this case, this company's mismatched, financed, And what we're looking for is an increase in gross fixed assets should equal an increase in long-term debt and retain earnings. This is, if you go get the book, this is spelled out exactly how to do it inside the book. All right, last one. I told you and promised you that I would teach you how to read a cash flow statement in 15 seconds or less. If you know how cash flow statements set up, it has operating activities. That's our core business. Investing activities like buying equipment or things for our business to grow. 
and financing activities, who actually has kind of ownership in this business, the bank from debt financing or shareholders with equity financing. The only thing I need to do is look at three numbers. What are the ending balances for those three activities? And in this case, I got them in blue. Cash flow from operating, cash flow from investing, cash flow from financing. The big skill you got to have is can I tell if that's a positive or negative number? Dan, is that a positive or negative number? Well, that would be positive. Yeah. So I just put a plus, right? She just put a plus. Michelle, you know this one? I have a 50 50 chance. Yeah. <laughs> that's negative, right? And then this one's negative. negative. That's all you have to do on a, on a cash flow statement. Put a symbol next to these three numbers. Is that positive or negative? And then if you keep them in this order, operating first, investing, then financing, there's only eight possible combinations they could be, plus minus in this case. So I've given you the cheat sheet. This is how you read a cash flow statement. Plus minus, this company is using cash flow from operations to buy assets and pay down debt. Boom. Doesn't matter what story you told me. Didn't take me a long time. I just went plus minus and read the chart. So this is how you can interpret a cash flow statement very quickly just to read the chart. Do we have another poll or anything like that before? I don't know how many we've done. Before I finish up, let's throw another uh, poll question. Would you like to learn more about the, the clear path, the cash? Because we're running up on the, the top of the hour. So let's go ahead and uh, continue on while people are, are answering that. Yeah. And the, and the clear path to cash is the eight concepts I teach. This is one. This is just one of the eight concepts that I teach on how to maximize cash. Why this is important. What you can also do is you can see typically what the cash flow uh, statement tells you about each company. This is normally startup, growth, maturity, decline. I just call them wonder, blunder, thunder, and under because it's funny. <laughs> and it makes me talk about blunder, which is the blunder phase. Growing broke is when you outrun your operations, which means getting a big contract, trying to fulfill it. If you work with Costco, make sure you have enough money to be able to fulfill all the orders for three, four months before you get paid. There has to be enough money to be able to do this. People get into uh, cash flow problems because they grow broke because a concept called the financial gap gets too large. You have to have enough money to cover the financial gap. The smaller the gap, the less money it takes. Right. So if you look at the end of that, growing broke is that specifically. The last one is sideshow ventures. This happened to me. Anytime they're starting to grow and people see it, they think that, oh, you're good at this. You should do that. Or we should partner on this other project. These are sideshow ventures because they're going to distract you from your main business, the one that you're actually making money with. In my case, I had hotels, restaurants, and properties. I had no business getting into herbal supplements. <laughs> Just there's no connection between them, but uh, it's a quick way to lose $200,000 is to combine all those together. So <laughs> that's what happened to me is I lost 200,000. I had a friend lose 1.2 million because he was great at construction. He and his wife tried to buy a bed and breakfast. The two didn't match. And what happens in a sideshow venture, you'll have one successful company feeding and supporting another unsuccessful company that doesn't match. So you can't really take synergies between the two. So those are the two big mistakes you can make in the blunder company is grow too fast or add something that doesn't really match with what you're currently doing. So Dan, that's what we went over today is the six calculations, a new way to interpret a cash flow statement and the two biggest mistakes. And of course, if you didn't get the book and want to know more about these more deeply, 
you can go to my website and grab it here. Uh, you can contact me and we have a 25% off. One of the largest discounts I give is because I, I love Dana and Michelle. So, thank you. <laughs> You've got a great training and a great program and everything. Can you just mention a little bit what you do for other accountants and bookkeepers and how you help them? Because you've got a great program that you do for people. Can you just mention that briefly? Yeah. Originally, it was just the clear path to cash, right? So the clear path to cash is just teaching mathematical concepts to be able to find out where hidden cash is inside a company and how to go grab it. Then I had accountants and bookkeepers come to me and say, hey, listen, we have, we're being pushed towards advisory services, but we got two big problems. One, there's not something out there that I can just start with. I don't want to start from scratch. There's no kind of template to, to build this thing out. And then two, I don't feel, really feel confident giving advice yet because I haven't done this skill. I've done all the other things that accountants and bookkeepers do for years, but I haven't done advisory type services. So I built a second course called Pathfinder. And what Pathfinder does is teach you the concepts in the clear path to cash, the math, the technical side, and then the advisory services side, how to, it's an out of the box advisory services program focused on cash flow. That's Pathfinder. The two together create the certification, the clear path to cash professional that I actually administer through a third party. And it's a great way to actually introduce cash flow advisory services to your client because it's out of the box, ready to go. Wonderful. And so if people are interested in that, they can check that out on your website. But regardless, they can get that free ebook and download that. So it's great information. You do a wonderful job as always. I'm so glad that you came on. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And as always, man, uh, anything I can do for Power Hour, please, please let me know. Great to see you. All right. So we'll see you next time on the QB Power Hour. And hopefully we'll have this echo out of my head. <laughs> thanks, Dan, for everything you do. And thank you, Mike. And Happy New Year to everybody. Thank you all for joining us today. Great to see everybody. And I hope you guys all have a great day. Happy New Year. Bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to the QB Power Hour podcast. If you have any questions, feel free to ask them in our Facebook group. You can find those resources and much more at qbpowerhour.com.